This year for Christmas, we're going to look at Christmas according to Matthew. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 1 this week, next week, and then chapter 2, the weeks leading up to Christmas Eve, which is on a Sunday this year. And so Christmas according to Matthew, I would say all of us in the room have heard the Christmas story time and time again, that God took on flesh, born in a manger, lived to die, on a cross, was buried, the tomb couldn't hold him, he ascends to the Father, and he will at one day return. Christmas is declaring a king has arrived. Matthew chapter 1. Now, listen, if you look, we are reading through a genealogy. And you talk about excitement. Getting through a genealogy. What in the world is God telling us that so-and-so had so-and-so, who had so-and-so, who had so-and-so? What does God have for us? Now, we believe that the Word of God is inspired and is very vitally important to our lives. And the reason why we have these first 17 verses is because God is telling us something. He's telling us exactly who he is. He is the king we have been waiting for. He's the anointed one, the one that's been promised. And his name's Jesus. So let us read. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Abinadab. Abinadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jeroam, Jeroam, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abahud. Abahud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, father of Mathan. Mathan, father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we see this text with fresh eyes. That at the right time, you sent your son to save a world that was in desperate need of saving. 
Lord, I pray that today we see with new eyes that Jesus is the King of glory and by grace we can enter his kingdom. Father, we thank you for the grace you've poured out on us and in us through your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You know, life is full of waiting. Hurry up and wait. Listen, today is a very hard time to preach a sermon because you know that there is stuff downstairs warming up as we speak. And if the smells get in here, it gets harder and harder to wait. We wait all the time. We wait at red lights. We wait in lines at stores. We're counting the days to Christmas break. Some, I found out today, one person's counting the days to retirement, 16 days until retirement. You have engaged couples that are counting down the days to the wedding day. You have always been waiting. As a matter of fact, this past month at our school, we found out that waiting for popcorn to pop is too long to wait. Two and a half minutes in the microwave. That's all you have to wait for the popcorn. When it stops popping, open the microwave door, or that burnt smell of popcorn will get all throughout the teacher's lounge and the first floor hallway and work its way up the longer you let it go. Well, we had a counselor that said, you know what? Two and a half minutes is too long to wait. I'm going to set it. I'm going to go back to doing what I need to do. Well, wouldn't you know that our microwave at school was a little bit stronger than the one she had at her house? After about two minutes, the popcorn was done. The next 30 seconds, a fire broke out. The bag burned, the popcorn was roasted and toasted, and the fire alarms went off. Now, the students loved it. Every student in the building, fourth period of the day, right in the middle of some tests, got to leave the building, go outside for the day. And they're, you know, worried about a fire. Not one. Not two, not three Covington fire trucks. Four Covington fire department trucks rolled through campus drive. And then this counselor comes out, guys, sorry to tell you this, there's nothing to worry about. It's just my bag of popcorn. Because two and a half minutes was too long to wait. And you know, that's life. A lot of us are waiting. And wouldn't you know, it, the very first verse of Matthew talks about Abraham. And there was a promise that was given to Abraham. Hey, through you, through your children, all the nations will be blessed. You know how long he had to wait to see that promise fulfilled? It was around 2,000 years. But then we have David, and you'll see this text, you saw David's name again and again. Matthew is making sure the readers understand, hey, Jesus is the one who was promised to David. You know how long David had to wait for that promise to be fulfilled? Over a thousand years. Did you know the people of God were still doing things after Malachi was written? That was about 430 B.C. So for about 400 years, the people of God 
are still on the planet. They just haven't heard from God too often. It was quiet. And here they are waiting for the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one to come. Is God going to keep his promises that he made to Abraham and David? And it was day after day, month after month, year after year. And this was a hard time to wait. Because there was no kingdom at this time. God's people was taken into exile, into captivity, in a foreign land under foreign kings. And it looked as if God had forgotten the promises he had made. But wouldn't you know it? Somebody had somebody who had somebody, and we get to Jesus. You want to know why? Because God always keeps his promises. And you want to know where the promises find their yes? It's in a person, and his name is Jesus. Jesus, and what we'll see, is the king of the universe. And therefore, there are two groups of people. There is a group of people that are in the kingdom, serving the king, living to the glory of their king. And the only way into the kingdom is not by being good people. The way into the kingdom is through grace because of what the king has done for us. And so there's a group of people who are in the, king, in the kingdom serving the king. But then there's another group ignoring the king, rejecting the king, wanting nothing to do with the king, rebelling against the king. Which group are you in this morning? And what you'll see is the king of kings, the one whose power knows no limits, is also the king who is gracious beyond all imagination. And he's inviting you into his kingdom because of what he's done for you. And so my prayer this morning is that you see with fresh eyes and gain a glimpse of the King of Glory. And then it's not just a passing glimpse, but it turns into a gaze that changes your life now and forever. Becoming kingdom citizens, enjoying the presence of our King forever and ever and ever. That's why we have a genealogy. So, first and foremost, what is Matthew telling us? Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the King. So, Matthew, unlike... 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians is not a letter to a church or an individual, right? So in 2 Thessalonians, we saw Paul was addressing an issue at the church in Thessalonica. Well, well here, this is the gospel of Matthew. Matthew's not writing specifically for a church or an individual. He's declaring good news, and it's the good news of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. And this is for all people. Because the good news has no limits. It's for you today, and it's for Matthew's readers 2,000 years ago. It's good news, and it's the good news of Jesus. He's also declaring that history revolves around a king who would come. And now it's a king that has come, and one day will be a king who returns. Jesus is the centerpiece of all history. 
your life and my life is about serving this king, the king who was promised, the king who has come, the king who is returning. And Matthew says, do not miss him. This is who you've been waiting for. That's why he goes back all the way to Adam or to Abraham and David. His goal is to show us that the promise to David and the promise to Abraham was kept. I want you to see the promise with your own eyes. If you're taking notes, 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 13. 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 13. And what we see is God is giving to David a promise. David wants to build a temple, but David's not a great king. He's a man with failure. He's a man with blood on his hands. And God says, it's not for you to build the temple. But he gives him a promise. And so you see, just catching glimpses of the grace of God. Listen to what God says to David. 2 Samuel 7, starting with the second part of verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors... I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, what you see after David is David has a son who becomes king, and then he has a son who becomes king. But you want to know what the problem with the king is? They keep dying. How can you have a king who reigns forever who lives for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 years. The reign ends when they die. Jesus doesn't have that problem. He goes to the grave, and the grave can't hold him. He is reigning and ruling now. Promise made, promise kept. You see this in chapter 7, the word forever, repeated again and again and again. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, it says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Now, you want to know what? If God's people were reading this text while in Babylon, in exile, in captivity, you want to know what they were probably saying? God's not keeping his promises. He said David's house would be reigning and ruling forever and ever. And look at us here. We're not even sure if God exists over here. Can you imagine their outlook? Or maybe they turn to 2 Samuel 7.24. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever. The God of the universe, what is your people doing in captivity? Or in verse 25, And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised. Well, it doesn't look too good after a few hundred years. And the whole point of God keeping his promise is found in 2 Samuel 7, 26, so that your name will be great forever. You see, the eternal kingdom is pointing to the glory of the eternal king, whose name is and will be forever great. It's the name at which every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. To him be glory and power forever and ever. And then finally in verse 29. Now be blessed to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed 
forever. That's the promise given to David. And then David dies. And then Solomon is king, and then he dies. And then the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And then there's a king that comes and is evil, and the kingdom splits. So you have Israel and Judah. And then you have a foreign army come and takes half of the kingdom captive. And then years pass, and there's another evil king, and then all of the kingdoms of God gone into exile, into Babylon. And yet, what you see, a remnant, a small group of people saying, no, no, these circumstances aren't, aren't going to keep God from keeping His promises. I'm going to hold on to the promises of God. And so you have, you've heard this passage around Christmas time. You have Isaiah, the prophet, speaking about these promises. He knows the promises made to King David. And this is what he says, Isaiah 9 Verses 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. You want to know what keeps God's people moving in exile? It's holding on to the promises of God. Knowing that God is able to keep His word despite the circumstances. Matthew, after over 400 years of silence, is telling God's people, hey, Jesus is the promised one. And he's here. That's what the Gospel of Matthew is all about. And let me tell you, that is good news to waiting, desperate people. He is the king that we eternally need. So not only is Jesus the reigning and ruling king who will be forever, as promised to David, but check out the scope of his kingdom. So you see this, Matthew chapter 1, 1, in the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So promises given to David, but promises were also given to Abraham. And this is going even further back than the promise given to David. So 2,000 years ago from Matthew writing, he brings up the promises given to Abraham, and this is it. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country your peoples, and your father's household to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, how in the world is God going to keep that promise? He keeps it through sending his son, Jesus. And when he lays his life down, only to take it up again, the nations are blessed. What an awesome king. We have a king whose reign will have no end and a kingdom that covers the entire earth.
Matthew traces the lineage of Jesus back to David and back to Abraham so that we make no mistake on identifying exactly who Jesus is. Don't get it twisted. Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the King that was promised. Uh, have any of you guys seen Aladdin? And I, I don't know. Hey, listen, we've got two different groups. We have Aladdin with Will Smith as a genie, and we have Aladdin with Robin Williams as a genie. Both classics. But I like going back to Robin Williams, and they're trying to show you how great Aladdin is. And so the genie does some tricks and soups up Aladdin, calls him Prince Ali. And just a description of the parade for Prince Ali. He goes, Prince Ali, fabulous he, show some respect, down on one knee. Right? So he's like, hey, you need to put some respect on Aladdin's name. This isn't just your normal guy. And then the description. Try your best to stay calm. Prince Ali, strong, mighty as he, strong as ten men, definitely. He faced the galloping hordes, a hundred bad guys with swords. He has 75 golden camels, 53 purple peacocks. He owns his own zoo, 95 monkeys, 60 elephants, llamas galore, bears, lions, and brass band and more. The procession is impressive, and the genie is announcing, hey, pay attention. And that's exactly what Aladdin's trying to do, impress a princess. Now, here, what you see is Matthew is saying, Wake up. Wake up. You thought God wasn't going to keep his promises. And he is. The kingdom is near. The king has arrived. His name is Jesus. And here's the awesome part. Jesus is more than Disney can ever illustrate. And he's better than your imagination of the greatest king in your own head. That's the type of king... Jesus is. There was a church in Texas, the Austin Stone Church, who came up with a song for their children to learn to understand how great of a king Jesus is. And the title of the song is King of Everything. King of Everything. And in it, it shows that Jesus is the creative king because he's the creator and sustainer of the universe. Jesus is the perfect king. He is holy, holy, holy. He is the light of the world, and in him is no darkness at all. He is the kind king, all power, and yet kind in all of his works, gentle, patient, and loving. Jesus is a generous king. He freely gives to all who call on him. Jesus is the wise king. His wisdom and knowledge know no end. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. Jesus is the powerful king, all power. Not even the grave could hold him down. Jesus is the victorious and conquering king. Not one enemy will be left standing. Jesus is the loving king. He's the king who lays his life down for his people. Jesus is the forever king. He is the eternal king, and the kingdom will not be shaken. There's a theologian, Abraham Coupier, and he puts it this way, talking about the extent and rule of Jesus. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He is the king over everything. How do you respond to him as king? 
How do you respond to the King of kings and Lord of lords? Not only is he the king over everything, he's also a gracious king. And, and this is the awesome part. If, if you read this list, and I want to be careful, and I think John MacArthur, uh, a trusted theologian of Old Testament, New Testament, he, he puts this caveat, and I want to put this in just so we don't get distracted. John MacArthur says, A careful look at the descendants of both Abraham and David reveals people who are often characterized by unfaithfulness, immorality, idolatry, and apostasy, but God's dealing with them was always characterized by grace. And he goes on to say, Even though the names were given, not so we do an in-depth look at the individual, but we see the mighty hand of God always at work. What do we see with the list? We see a God who is gracious. And I'm just going to point out a few of the examples. If you notice in this list, there's five women mentioned. Right? Mary's the last one mentioned, but the four previous all are wrapped in scandal. And I don't know about you, but if you're going back through your family tree, you might leave out a couple crazy uncles. You might have a brother or sister like, like Ugh, we're related, barely. But that's not what you see God doing. This is the awesome thing with Jesus. And I want you to, to catch the glimpse of his power. And, this, and we're not going through a whole sermon series of Matthew, and you would see this. People were scared to death of the outcast, of the sinner, of the dirty. And the crazy thing is, when Jesus shows up, that's exactly who he's calling to himself. And here's, here's what you will see. A man with leprosy in this time had to announce, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. It was illegal for him to come in contact with any person. So he would have to announce he's unclean. He'd have to wear bells so people knew to stay away from him. When he's coming down the street, you're on the other side of the street. And yet what you see with Jesus... He comes to the leper and he touches him and Jesus doesn't become leprous. The leper becomes well. Okay. Well, then there's this lady and she's desperate. And we, we see that she went to doctor after doctor after doctor. Just try this, just try this. Hey, and some of you know how this is. Going to different physicians, trying to fi figure out how in the world to be made well. Well, this lady had a constant flow of blood. She was sick and she was desperate. And now she was destitute. She had no money left. And she's like, man, if I could just touch the hem of his coat, I could be made well. And, and you want to know what the awesome part is? So in this time, if someone who was bleeding touched you, you became unclean, ceremonial unclean. You couldn't partake in the temple. But what happens is when she touches his garment, she doesn't make Jesus unclean. He makes her well. This is the awesome part about our king. He takes dirty, broken, fallible people and turns them into kingdom citizens who are made eternally well. 
We don't make Jesus dirty. He makes us clean. And so when you see the, the four ladies, you have, you have a lady who's desperate for a child. Her husband died, Tamar. I think this is Genesis 38. And to trick her brother-in-law, she dresses up as a prostitute so that she could have a baby so that her family could survive. That's in the genealogy of Jesus. <laughs> that's awkward. And yet, that's what we read. But then, just in case we miss that, if we skim past that, then you have Rahab. Rahab didn't dress up like a prostitute. That was her profession. And yet she feared God, and God rescued her out of that. And she is the great-great-grandmother of King David. Oh, but it gets even better than that. Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. Moabites were not allowed to marry the Israelites. And yet, somehow, someway, Ruth gets into the family line. You want to know who David called grandma? Ruth. What an awesome testimony of God's grace at work in his people. And then we keep reading. You get to David. And it mentions the wife of Uriah. That's Bathsheba. Bathsheba was an adulterer. Bathsheba was married to Uriah, whom David had killed so they could get married. And yet, through that dysfunction, God is at work. And all through that line comes Jesus. And so you have four different ladies all pointing to one simple yet powerful truth. That Jesus is the king of grace. He's a gracious king. That's the type of king we want to serve. But in case you missed it with the four ladies, he gives you three different eras. Right? You have the era from Abraham to David. You got the patriarchs. You have exile. They're in slavery in Egypt. Then they're delivered by Moses. You have the time of the judges, right? And so you see God at work all through that era. And then with King David, things are like, ah, oh, finally we've arrived. But it just keeps on descending in the second era from king after king after king. Only about four of them are godly, leading the people to follow God. The rest of them are leading people away from God. And yet you see God is just methodically at work. No, I'm going to keep my promises. I'm going to keep my promises. You refuse to follow me as, as God, but I will continue to be God. And you will continue to be my people. And the anointed one is still coming. And so you get to the last king, and then they go into Babylon exile. And then you have a bunch of names of people you don't know and I don't know. Not very impactful people, right? Only in that Jesus was coming through them. How awesome is that? Every era, you're like, uh, the people aren't doing too well there. Well, maybe here with the kings, they'll do a little, uh, not doing too well there. Well, in exile, they'll get desperate and call it, not nah, doing too hot there either. And yet, who is doing well? God. God is faithful to his promises. So you've got four ladies highlighting the grace of God. You have three heirs highlighting the grace of God. You have two men that are held up as examples of faith, but we see their flaws that point to the grace of God.
Abraham is the one God called out. Said, hey, through your family, all the nations will be blessed. You want to know what Abraham did? He'd go to a land, and then all of a sudden there'd be a powerful ruler. And he's married to a lady that's attractive, and he would tell the king, ah, she's not my wife. She's my sister. So that he wouldn't be put to death, and the king take his wife as his wife. And he did it the first time, and God gave him a warning, like, why are you doing that? You serve me. These kings are nothing compared to my greatness and my power and my strength and my protection. Trust me. And Aaron's like, all right, all right, I got you. Until he goes to the next city. And there's a powerful king who asks him about his wife, Sarah. And Abraham's like, uh, yeah, uh, she's my sister. Does it again. And you're just like, man, he doesn't get it. Flawed men. And then you know David. David's on the balcony when kings should have been out to war. He should have been fighting, leading the army of God. Instead, he's on a balcony checking out a lady, taking a bath, calls her over, commits adultery, and then when she's pregnant, her husband, Uriah, Uriah wasn't just some stranger. Uriah's in the list of the mighty men of David. He is a faithful, loyal soldier. He got things done. And David tells the commander, hey, go attack this army. And when you draw up close, retreat, but leave Uriah out there. Make sure he's dead. He murders Uriah. So how in the world do these two guys get to be included in the kingdom? The same way you and I get to be included into the kingdom. By grace. None of us, none of us deserve it. And yet we serve a gracious king. And then I'll leave you with one author. The guy writing this book, Matthew. Matthew 9.9, 9, it talks about how Jesus is walking. He comes to this tax booth. And he says, hey, Matthew, come follow me. And Matthew's simple response is, I dropped the booth and I started walking and followed Jesus. And I thought, you know what's interesting about Matthew? Here is Matthew, a tax collector. He's robbing the Israelites, robbing the Jews of their money, giving it to the Romans. Probably one of the most hated men in his neighborhood. And yet that's exactly who God transforms to deliver the greatest message, the greatest news to his neighborhood. Isn't that an awesome testimony of grace? You used to rob the people of God, and now you're giving the greatest news to the people of God. And that's what God does. And so Matthew's telling us, hey, this is the promised one. This is the king. But also know this. This is the king of grace. He is a gracious king. How will you respond to the king who is full of grace? Now, David Platt uses this as, as he goes through Matthew. He, he describes three types of responses to the king. And I love this. You know how the church will respond, right? The king has a kingdom. And so if I asked you, what does the kingdom look like? How could you respond? Should be. It looks a little bit like Redemption Church. Because the king should be ruling over our lives. The church is an expression of the kingdom of God. When we want to see how kingdom dynamics operate, we should be able to see that in a church. You want to know when Jesus is not being followed as king? 
when a church looks nothing like the kingdom of God, when the church shows no grace to anybody, when the church shows no love for anybody, when the church is not forgiving anyone, when the church is not serving anyone in the city, that's when you know they probably aren't following the king. A church should represent and show a world who is desperate what the kingdom looks like. You want to know how you get into the kingdom? Through grace. Three types of responses in the book of Matthew. The first one were the religious leaders. And you guys know how, how they received Jesus. Man, this guy keeps on saying he's God. The problem was Jesus kept on doing things only God could do. So here's a guy that can't walk. He's lower down to him. He says, get up, take your mat. You've been made well. Actually, he tells him his sins are forgiven, which only God can do. I agree with the religious leaders. that I believe only God can do that. The problem is they didn't see Jesus as God. And so Jesus asked him, what's easier? Tell him his sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? Obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't really see if that happens or not. But then Jesus doubles down. He says, hey, man, get up and walk. And the guy that it took four people to carry in and drop down on the mat was able to jump up, pick up his mat, and run out in joy. The religious leader said, nope, he's not God. And then they, have, they ask him questions and see, like, will he say? And then Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Takes the name of God for himself. And at this, they try to grab Jesus and kill him. And the Bible says that it's not his time, so he just escaped through the crowd. It's an amazing thing to see how the religious leaders rejected Jesus. You want to know what else is amazing? People are still rejecting Jesus today. I want nothing to do with him. I don't care who he is. I don't care what he's done. I don't care that David had a kid that had a kid that had a kid. that. The king of the universe is inviting you into the kingdom, and yet many will say, I don't care. I'm going to live life how I want to. I'm the king of my universe. People are responding to Jesus that way today. Then there's a second group. There's the crowds. So as long as Jesus was doing what they wanted, they loved to follow him. And who wouldn't? I mean, can you imagine just walking with Jesus? It's raining. There's a storm. He says, hey, chill out, storm, and it just stops. We don't have food. Let's say we go downstairs, somebody got all the food from downstairs, and, but Jesus is here, and he just says, hey, don't worry, we'll have food, and he just lays out a spread, and there's enough for all of us to eat, and baskets are left over. People love following Jesus. The sick are healed, the lame can walk, people that can't speak all of a sudden can speak. You go to a funeral with Jesus, and it doesn't stay a funeral. Dead girl, get up. Lazarus, dead for four days, get up. Like, wouldn't it be awesome to walk around with Jesus? But then what Jesus does is he says some difficult things. Hey, unless you hate your mom and dad, you can't follow me. Unless you eat blood or drink blood and eat my flesh, you can't follow me. And the people are like, ah, oh, these are difficult sayings. He went crazy on us. Ah, uh, we're not following. And you want to know, there's a lot of people in the world today that treat Jesus that way too. I'll follow Jesus as long as he blesses my bank account. I'll follow Jesus as long as he gives me health. I'll follow Jesus as long as my family's doing well. We kind of treat Jesus like Santa Claus. 
Here's my list of demands. You better show up. But you know what? That group, that group's not a part of the kingdom. They are eternally separated from the king. It's the group that stands in front of Jesus and says, Lord, Lord, did we not do this, this, and this? And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. And then there's a third group, and it's a small group. It's the group of disciples, the followers. And I'm not talking about just the 12. I'm talking about the small band of people that says, whatever the king asked for, we're going to do. We're going to bow down and worship the king. We are here to serve the king. Those are kingdom citizens. Those are the people that have been transformed by grace. And so I don't know what group you're in. But I do know this. All of us will respond to the king. How will you respond? I'll leave you, I'll leave you with this, with this plea. There's a, that song, The King of Everything. Um, it, it had an interesting lyric towards the end. The lyric goes, King of Everything... Yours is the greatness, yours is the power, yours is the victory, yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory. You are king of everything, and you reign forever and ever, so I will lift my hand in worship up to you, almighty king, and I will bow down in surrender. You are the reason that I sing. How awesome is that for as children to see they have a king that is calling them into the kingdom. And the right response to the king of everything, is a knee bowed in worship and hands that are ready to serve and do whatever the king calls us to do. S.M. Lockridge lives us with this. He, he gives this description. And I think Matthew is trying to highlight this, the greatness of Jesus. And this was about a three-minute sermon text from this pastor. And he's just trying to highlight who Jesus is. So bear with me as I dive through this, but it's just a description of the promised one, the anointed one, the king of kings. He goes, my king was born king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages, the king of heaven, the king of glory, the king of kings and lord of lords. Now, that's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is the only one whom there are no means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shore of supplies. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immeasurably graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's the center savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled and unprecedented. He's supreme and preeminent. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He's strong and he guides. He heals the sick, cleanses the lepers, forgives sinners, delivers captives, defends the feeble. He serves the unfortunate and regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and lifts up the meek. Do you know him? His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Well, I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. He's invincible. He's irresistible. The heavens can't contain him and man can't fully explain him. 
You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. His is the kingdom and the power and glory forever and ever and ever. And when you get through with all of the evers, then forever and amen, that is my king. Now, if I was describing someone that you had no relationship with, that wouldn't move you. But when you realize that the king that we just described, the king that Matthew was saying is the promised one, when he is your savior, that changes your life now and forever. That's something worth getting excited about. That is what Christmas is all about. It's better than any gift you will ever get this side of heaven. His name is Jesus, and he is the king of everything. And he deserves all of our worship forever and ever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your grace. The only way any of us get into the kingdom is because of the work your son did on the cross for us. Nothing that we deserve, nothing that we have earned, but only by your grace, you make us alive. You forgive us of our sin and change us. And so, Father, I pray that we see your glory and your grace this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.